It's Monday, November 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The two leading vaccine candidates are using technology that has never been approved in a commercial vaccine before. They both use messenger RNA to direct human cells to manufacture the spike protein found on the coronavirus. While this technology has been in development for two decades, the latest vaccines prove the science is sound and could change the way future vaccines are made. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for how these mRNA vaccines work and why they do so well. Next, Hollywood and the entertainment industry have been grappling with a series of mass layoffs. The pandemic has accelerated a shift in the business needs of major studios and networks. As the focus of the industry turns to streaming and subscription-based platforms, companies need different expertise from their executives. Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief at Variety, joins us for how the entertainment industry continues to redefine itself for a streaming future. Finally, while the pandemic continues to be the most urgent health need in the country, there are many that are still struggling with addiction. There is an addiction treatment method called contingency management that has been shown to work, but so far has been underused. The concept rewards drug users with money and prizes for staying abstinent, and therein lies most of the objections to using this method. Abby Goodenough, national health correspondent at the New York Times, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They're both mRNA vaccines, which is a new and exciting vaccine type. They're both two-dose vaccines, um, and they're both over 90% effective. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. There's been a lot of great news on vaccines the last few weeks. We're seeing these uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that use messenger RNA at about 95% effective against coronavirus. So like I said, just a lot of great news, but I did want to take a step back and go a little deeper into what these vaccines are and the promise that they hold for making future vaccines. It all centers around this messenger RNA. We don't have, we've never had a commercial vaccine that uses this type of technology so this will be a first once they get approved. And by all accounts, it seems like it's going to get approved very soon. So, Karen, tell us a little bit more about how messenger RNA works and why it's, it could be so revolutionary for the health industry. We all have messenger RNA in every cell in our body. It's what takes the message from the DNA, the code of the DNA, and makes proteins, which is what does everything, uh, makes our bodies work. And so what this does is takes that same process and gets our cells to manufacture the desired protein, in this case, the spike protein that's on the outside of the virus that causes COVID-19. And once our body learns, sees this protein and develops an immune reaction to it, when we're exposed to the actual virus, we'll mount a reaction. But the protein itself is harmless, as are apparently these, uh, these mRNAs. The potential here is that they could make your cells produce virtually any protein. So if there's a protein on the outside of a flu virus, they can do the same for the flu. These messenger RNA type vaccines have been in work in the works for a little while. Scientists have been working on them. Exactly. That, that's why we're able to adapt so quickly when it came down to coronavirus. But, you know, that kind of weird silver lining, we wouldn't have gotten here right. if not for the pandemic and that urgent need. Right, exactly. They were close, but this really brought them brought them all the way home. These technologies have been worked on for two decades at least, and there were sort of two key things. One was this mRNA technology that had been stalled for a long time. It was hard to get it to work, and, and researchers finally did. And the other was identifying this spike protein on the surface of the virus that causes COVID. And that was done in part because of SARS-1 
and and MERS, this other similar virus, where we realized that these coronaviruses had spike proteins. They all had spike proteins on their surface. Let's get a little bit into the science of all of this, because uh, as you mentioned, this has been in development for two decades. But there was two big reasons you mentioned in your article on why they work so well. First, they're not grown in eggs or cells or anything. And obviously, as we've been saying, they can be developed really quickly. Right. All you need is the genetic sequence of the protein that you want to make. And that the Chinese published that very early in this pandemic in January. And so the researchers, Moderna first, and then also BioNTech, this German biotech company that paired up with Pfizer, they got started really back in January with this. And that's why they were able to turn it so quickly. Now, one of the other interesting things, too, that we heard out of the Pfizer vaccine candidate about how cold it needed to be stored at, the sub-zero temperatures that it needed to be held at. And we're finding out a little bit more about that is that the messenger RNA is very delicate. And so for that vaccine, they're kind of encasing it in fat cells or fat, basically, and they need right. it to be stored very cold so that that fat holds up and it protects it. That, I, I, that was pretty crazy to me. I didn't understand that at first. <laughs> yep. Yep. These little blobs of fat are what, what protects it um, and keeps it from falling apart. Um, Moderna has figured out how to keep those blobs stable at a warmer temperature. So their vaccine needs to be kept frozen most of the time, but not as, as cold as Pfizer's does. And also it can be refrigerated for the last couple of weeks, a month before, before dosing. So that's a little bit more practical, but Pfizer has figured out a way to deliver its vaccine in coolers that will keep it cold, add dry ice, uh, and it stays super cold for a long time. You did hear from some of the scientists that were kind of chief in, in designing this messenger RNA type vaccines. Uh, you know, what did they say? How did they uh, comment on, on all of this and how quickly this has all been moving? Well, they're obviously ecstatic because they've uh, a couple of people I spoke to at the University of Pennsylvania have literally spent their entire careers on, on mRNA and people thought they were crazy for pursuing this. Uh, and now they've been proven right. Um, and, uh, you know, they're they're just I talked to a guy at the government um, who figured out the spike protein, and he said he was sobbing when he heard the news uh, how successful the vaccine was. So it's it's really a, a, a triumph. It really is. And as we mentioned, you know, the promise for the future, right? Since this mRNA thing, you know, you just have to swap out what protein that you want to end up making. You know, they're already working on other vaccines uh, for Zika, chikungunya. They're working on ones that would help fight cancer, so this is really kind of uh, once we get over this coronavirus pandemic, these vaccines could be potentially used for so much more. In scientific terms, Moderna has always said they were making a platform, not a product, you know, that, that they were doing something that, that could be used for a lot of different purposes. The cancer idea is still pretty uh, pie in the sky, but the, the idea is they could take a protein that's only on your cancer tumor cells, not in your regular cells target that, turn the immune system against the cancer cells uniquely and have an impact. And if they can do it in two months and get you personal, a personalized cancer vaccine, that could make a big difference. Obviously, it's going to be expensive at first, so <laughs> right. it may not be practical for a while, but, but that's the idea. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It is a response to the economy, but it's also massive restructuring and a, just changing skill sets that are needed for the way the entertainment industry is clearly moving in a different direction. Joining us now is Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief at Variety. Thanks for joining us, Cynthia. 
Thank you. I wanted to do a check-in on the entertainment industry. We're seeing a lot of layoffs in Hollywood. Pretty much every major company has had some form of layoffs recently. And we're seeing a big restructuring that's geared towards streaming. We Obviously, we've been seeing this for a long time, but I can't imagine that you know with the pandemic, this might have accelerated it. Everybody's at home. Nobody's obviously going to the movie theaters. So a lot of these top executives that are kind of in the traditional roles of marketing and distribution are leaving because these companies are putting a bigger focus on streaming. So Cynthia, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing. It's been a brutal year for everyone, but it has been very difficult in Hollywood because of the pandemic's impact on entertainment. And it's sort of been like it's been a windfall in some areas and a horrible pullback and literal shutdowns. Memories weren't long enough to go back to 1918 when, in fact, they did have similar shutdowns. But in the modern era, the movie business has never experienced anything like a prolonged shutdown of theaters, prolonged inability to produce new movies. It's devastating in a way that doesn't compare to people not being able to put food on the table, but it is devastating in just in terms of to see an industry that is so vibrant and always moving and always pushing the envelope and just to have everything stop so significantly and suddenly has been jarring. What's so jarring about what's going on in Hollywood right now with all the layoffs is that it is a response to the economy, but it's also massive restructuring and just changing skill sets that are needed for the way the entertainment industry is clearly moving in a different direction than it has in different directions than it has operated for the previous hundred years. And that requires a lot of new skill sets. And a lot of people that have worked in entertainment in highly paid white collar jobs are suddenly becoming outmoded. And that is one of the things that is most jarring and just most devastating for the entire sector is to see that kind of a, it's a generational transition yeah, one of the things that you mentioned in your article that Warner Media that had a round of big layoffs just very recently, and a lot of their counterparts, they need more data scientists than they do film distribution experts. You know, they need people working the algorithms, working the direct to consumer platforms more so than they need the other right now. Hollywood to the public is, you know, is seen as sort of the glamour of actors and directors and, you know, very famous people, very famous people on TV. But behind all of that, there are businesses, there are studios and networks, they are run as businesses, and they're staffed with executives at every level. So for years, the unsexy side of Hollywood were the people that did everything from accounting and finance and administration, and also sales. It took salespeople to get movies into theaters around the country, and it took sales executives to handle television programming. And the business is just changing now, and you don't need that kind of regional expertise. You don't need somebody that knows the Northeastern market and all the theater owners there because you're essentially pushing a button and sending your movie to Netflix or HBO Max or Hulu or any you know, it's just a very different skill set. And people that could count on had specialties and expertise and could count on being well paid for all of that. All of a sudden, in a, in a relatively short period of time, let's call it the last two years, the largest employers in Hollywood have taken a really hard look and looked at the staffing and the expertise that they need for the future versus what they have now. And what we're seeing is mass layoffs 
at the white collar level that are, again, very, this is not just a short-term economic downturn. This is a wholesale restructuring and change of what is needed to make these companies run in the 21st century. And, you know, a lot of people have said that businesses should have seen this coming sooner, should have prepared, you know, should have been able to prepare more for this kind of transition. That's always Monday morning quarterbacking. But what's going on right now is deep cuts and painful. And again, these are people that are not likely going to be able to go out and find another job using skills that may have been very much in demand as much as five years ago, but not so much anymore. Well, I mean, as the traditional structure kind of goes away, you know, we'll probably see a downsizing that's going to be a little more permanent. And, you know, we'll probably see more departures as this full transition kind of makes its way through. But that would also leave other opportunities for, you know, new up and comers to step into these roles, right? As we mentioned, you know, more data scientists, people on that end of the thing, it could be an opening there. But the overall industry has been changing for some time now, and it's going to keep going that way, it seems like. Another example would be marketing expertise. You think about how were movies promoted in the past, billboards, bus sides, TV ads, for sure, radio ads. That's all about reaching a mass audience and getting mass numbers to the theater on the opening weekend. Now the game is algorithms and social media and making sure that your digital teaser content gets spread widely through fan networks. Again, very different skill sets from making sure that you have George Clooney's face on every other bus that's going around New York, L.A., and Chicago. Right. Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief at Variety, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And the interesting thing is that most of these papers don't have tangible prizes written on them. They just have these encouraging statements like you're doing a great job. Joining us now is Abby Goodenough, national health correspondent at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Abby. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about addiction treatment. You know, there's been a lot going on through the pandemic, specifically with regards to COVID-19. But there's also a lot of underlying health problems that are going on in the country opioid addictions. In this context, we're going to speak a little bit more about addictions to things like cocaine and methamphetamines. But there's an approach called contingency management that rewards drug users with you know money, little prizes, things like that for staying abstinent and not using drugs. These programs have been shown to be pretty effective, but there's kind of a broader objection to this whole concept of rewarding people or staying off of drugs. So, Abby, tell us about this concept of contingency management, and then beyond that, obviously, you know, the big objections to all of it. First, I should say that contingency management is especially useful right now for addiction to stimulants, and we're talking about mainly methamphetamine and cocaine, and addiction to stimulants is something that there's not any great treatment for. Right now, unlike with opioids, where we have certain types of medication that really help suppress cravings and keep people from overdosing and keep people in treatment, we don't have that kind of medication for stimulant addiction. So contingency management, it involves a system of rewarding certain behaviors or actions with the goal of the person continuing them over time. So in this case, it's rewarding abstinence, maybe rewarding coming back to keep on attending therapy sessions but mostly abstinence. And it keeps people coming back 
because of the possibility that they might keep winning this reward or maybe even win a bigger reward next time. Research has found it to be among, if not the most effective thing we have at this point in time in terms of keeping people from relapsing with stimulant use. From uh, my reading of your article, it seems like a person would come into their treatment center, provide a urine sample. If it's clean, they'll bring out a fishbowl with a bunch of little possibilities. And sometimes it's as simple as it's saying, good job, you know, you made it through. And other times it has little cash rewards, anything from like a dollar up to a hundred dollars even. It's called the prize bowl method. And it is exactly that. It looks like a huge fishbowl full of little folded slips of paper. And the interesting thing is that most of these papers don't have tangible prizes written on them. They just have these encouraging statements like you're doing a great job. Some small number of them have small rewards, like maybe worth a dollar or two dollars and much even smaller amount have bigger rewards. Sometimes like in every fishbowl, there might be one slip worth a hundred dollar reward. So that's what it looks like. And maybe after you've had your urine test and after you've had your counseling session or whatever, everybody who has clearly remained abstinent since the last time they were there gets uh, to draw from the fishbowl. What is the big objection to this? There's a couple things going on. The simplest is just the stigma around drug use and drug users and this old idea that I think a lot of people have. Why should people get rewards for doing what society expects all of us to do? In this case, not use illegal drugs. Nobody rewards the rest of us for not breaking the law. So why should we reward this behavior? And then the concern is that some treatment providers who receive federal funding through Medicaid or Medicare, and that's a lot of addiction treatment providers, that they might commit fraud by luring new patients and getting federal reimbursement for it with the promise of cash or gift cards. And that would be illegal. That's clearly not what's going on here, but because it could be interpreted that way, some insurance companies and programs are just really skittish about really embracing it. And then the third thing is just that it's expensive to keep doing this. And the research suggests that the longer you do it, the more effective it is. And it costs money. So it's a matter of getting insurers to buy into that as well. Some doctors have said that they see it working with really good outcomes. The patients themselves, there was an example that you had in the article. She was using this method. And at first she said, hey, it wasn't the right motivation, but it actually helped me in the long run to find those support systems and whatnot. So there have been a lot of a lot of uh, people finding success with this method. One of the doctors who works at the VA, who I quoted in the story, put it really well. It's not a panacea, he said, but it's a start. And he thinks of it as a scaffolding. He said, we can't provide this kind of reinforcement indefinitely, but for a sufficient amount of time that the patient will begin to experience the naturally occurring benefits of recovery. And I think that's really important. Just the idea of keeping people coming in for treatment and staying abstinent long enough for some other feelings of being rewarded to kick in that don't necessarily involve coming back to get a prize every time. I think that's the goal. Abby Goodenough, National Health Correspondent at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.